Welcome to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. My name is Susie Collett. I'm a violent crime survivor, a martial artist, and I'm the founder of Pretty Deadly Self-Defense. And I'm Homey Vaseen, a fitness professional and certified Pretty Deadly trainer living in Islamabad. We're exploring the kinds of violence women around the world face, the different ways we defend ourselves on a daily basis, and of course, sharing our self-defense tips and techniques as we go. If there's anything you would like us to explore, send us your questions and comments to hi at teamprettydeadly.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Hello, everyone. This is our 101st episode. Hame is not joining us this time because she's busy teaching her Pretty Deadly Self-Defense course. But we're also beginning to change our format for our podcast and for our video cast. And I'm here with our special guest, Andrew Juarez, who's kind of going to be the bridge to our new format. We're going to be interviewing professionals in different fields of life, work fields, as well as play fields, entertainment fields, creative fields, business fields, and talking to them about where and how self-defense might be used in their work. Andrew, however, his work is self-defense. He is a self-defense instructor for his own program called Rise Above Self-Defense, located in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Pretty Deadly Podcast, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Susie. I really appreciate you having me on, and I really appreciate what you're doing for the self-defense industry. Well, thank you. And likewise, we've talked to, so just so everybody knows and full disclosure, I've been a guest on Andrew's podcast, which we actually recorded just before this one. So we're doing a swap, um, but it's also a pretty fascinating conversation as people who are working in the self-defense industry, because I think a lot of people don't really recognize that sometimes that they think it's just something that volunteers do, but it is an industry. And as someone else to speak to in the self-defense industry. That's exciting for me because I don't really get to have these conversations very often. Now, before we talk about any kind of business stuff, can you give us a little bit of background on your own martial arts training? What style, of course, and what got you into martial arts in the first place? Well, I've been in and out of martial arts pretty much my whole life. I started off with boxing. Um, then I went to karate because my neighbor was a black belt and he was starting his own school in his garage. And my neighborhood, there was a lot of boys around. I'd say there was a couple of girls there, but they were really old to the point where we're talking in their 18s and up where the average neighborhood boy was between eight and 12, eight, 13, something like that. Mm-hmm. So when my mom seen all these boys that grew up together, go to school together, were around each other hours and hours um, throughout the day, we'd have the tendency to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And when our neighbor moved in and he was a black belt in Lima Lama karate, which is the Indonesian style of karate, and he was only charging $5 a student. But mm-hmm. we're talking back in 86, 87, something like that. Right. And uh, he just wanted to fill up the garage. So he was giving everybody neighborhood discounts. So my mom paid for all of us to go. That's great. There, it's there it's was, very Cobra Kai. 
Yes. Yeah. There was about, <laughs> there was about eight of us in the neighborhood. So my, my mom paid the $5 for all of us to go. So we wouldn't create mischief somewhere else. At right. least she knew where we were. Smart. And so I was eight, nine years old when I started, mm -hmm. I did that until about 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And then I went to high school and I found girls and karate took a backseat to that. And then later on, I was in the Navy and I learned some basic self-defense. And then I also, once I got out of the Navy, I learned Muay Thai. Um, I took Taekwondo. I've, I've been in and out for a long time. And about seven years ago, I tore my rotator cuff working out at the mm -hmm. gym. So when I tore my rotator cuff, I couldn't do anything. I fell into a depression and I started eating my feelings and I gained 300 pounds. And my wife one day told me, she goes, you know, you've always liked martial arts. Why don't you get back mm -hmm. into martial arts? And I started doing research on martial arts. I wanted to learn self-defense. I didn't want to learn martial arts. I wanted to learn if someone attacks me, what can I do? If someone pulls a gun on me, what can I do? And I ended up finding a dojo on the internet um, that wasn't too far from the house. And I took a free class and I really enjoyed it. And I signed up and it helped me lose the weight because it doesn't feel like cardio. It's not like mm -hmm. being on a treadmill for an hour. Mm-hmm an hour of martial art class, it, you get a good workout in there and you don't even feel that you're working out. Is this a karate dojo or? It was a Krav Maga dojo. Oh, okay. And that's where I wanted the self-defense. And what I really liked was it was Krav Maga, but they also taught Muay Thai and Judo. They taught karate for the kids. It was karate from, I think, five years old. And then at mm -hmm. 14 they'll move the kids into the Krav Maga program. Mm. But I really liked it because all the other martial arts that I've taken, I didn't learn anything about clinching. I, mm -hmm. I knew how to throw a punch and I, I knew how to kick. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what to do if someone was pulling on my hoodie and trying to take me to the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was learning in the Krav Maga program. So, mm -hmm. so that's where I really got into it and really enjoyed it. And I ended up getting my black belt through them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an easy test. It was a, almost a five hour test. And the mm -hmm. first, first 45 minutes of it is just calisthenics and mm -hmm. everything was allowed on the mat, puking, crying, sweating, just no quitting that that test was brutal but it's one of those things that once you you finish it you feel so proud of yourself because you went through that mm -hmm. and you were able to accomplish it and mm -hmm. you know if getting a black belt is easy everybody would be a black belt right right exactly so uh, you said something that i think is really interesting you know you wanted to learn self-defense and the other martial arts that you had studied before weren't really teaching you stuff that you felt were practical or applicable. 
I want to ask you what you feel the difference between martial arts and self-defense is. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you about as a guy, what does that mean? And what were you looking for exactly to learn self-defense? Because one of the things that's come up for me in my practice with Pretty Deadly is there are men sometimes who ask us if they can take classes with us because they don't want to learn martial arts. They just want to learn self-defense. And there aren't really classes that are self-defense for men. There are classes that are self-defense for women, but there's often not both, or there's often not anything specifically for men. It just gets lumped into martial arts. What did you find with that when you were looking? Is that something of frustration that you found yourself facing? Yes. I think what helped is because I had done martial arts prior I knew what I was looking for where mm -hmm. I would assume that, okay, if I'm learning karate, that it would help me in an attack situation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying it won't, but to me, there was a difference, difference between a fight and an attack. Um, a fight is, it's going to build up. You could feel the escalation. You could feel the tension in the air or an attack you have one person knows it's coming and the other person doesn't. And it's normally going to be within really close range, mm -hmm. especially if it's a weapon attack. Mm -hmm. There is a difference in the techniques and in the mentality when you're learning it. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't looking for tournaments. I wasn't looking for any kind of competitions or demo teams or any of that kind of stuff all that stuff is great and anybody who studies those more power to you it's just that wasn't what i was looking for mm -hmm. i was looking for what can i do in a situation if someone does so and so move to me mm -hmm. and that's where i found in the krav maga because one of the main rules was that there was no tournaments because if you learn how to fight with rules when your life depends on it you're going to fight within those rules because you've been mm -hmm. training in those rules mm -hmm. so that was the philosophy uh, behind Krav Maga so you kind of make it up as you go the way I teach it now put it in a verbiage is I give you the sheet music and you write your own song because mm -hmm. every attack, every fight is going to be different. Mm -hmm. Every attacker is going to be different. We don't know the scenarios. There's so many different scenarios out there. Mm -hmm. But if I teach you the fundamentals that will help you set the ground, the, your ground fighting or ground rules for yourself, then I did my job. Mm -hmm. Because now you're prepared for whatever scenario, because you already know, okay, well, sometimes this flows into this easier or a knee flows into uh, a takedown easier. Or mm -hmm. if I teach you all the individual techniques and you understand them, then whichever order you put them in is up to you because the fight is going to dictate how you're going to do what you're going to do or move the way you're going to move. I did end up finding in Krav Maga because 
there was no rules. There was a structure of the curriculum, which is they pretty much took all the best techniques from all the different styles. Like they teach kicks from Taekwondo, um, some karate kicks. They teach punching from boxing. They teach elbows and knees from Muay Thai. They teach takedowns from Judo. And they teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu if you end up on the ground. So I like that aspect of it because it was making me like well-rounded and prepared for certain scenarios that I didn't find in any other kind of martial art that I was looking at. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So you talked about um, how your mom is the one who actually got you into martial arts, you and all the other kids in the neighborhood. Um, You were raised by a single mom. And you mentioned to me that you had no adult male influence in your life. It was just you and your brother were the only two guys in the house. Yes. And how do you think that that affected you as an adult person who's teaching self-defense because you specialize in self-defense to women yes yes Mm -hmm. well uh, it just turned out that way i didn't set myself up to to specialize with just women it's just that most of my clientele are women it's interesting because i think that 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 speaks to the fact that um women actually do want to learn self-defense and i think within the self-defense industry the people who are teaching self-defense, mostly martial artists, there's a sort of persistent belief that women don't actually want to learn it. But the fact that you didn't set yourself up to teach only women, but those are the people who are coming to your classes, I think speaks, it speaks to that, doesn't it? It says like, you know, actually women really do want to learn self-defense, but they want to learn self-defense from good trainers and in good programs. Yeah, most most mm-hmm. my experience, I, they're the ones that say, oh, I'm going to refer my friend. Or it's always referring to another woman. It's not, oh, I'm going to bring my husband or whatever. Once in a while, I get that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's a woman who wants to bring a friend, another mm-hmm. woman to come and take the class. And uh, it's, I, I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I do have a mother-daughter team where the daughter is 13 years old, but they train together. So you have a built-in training partner if you can get one of your kids or siblings to get in there. On purpose, I don't have them train a lot together Mm -hmm. because I know they're comfortable with each other. Mm -hmm. And if we're comfortable, we don't grow. So I have them train with other students see it's beginning of the technique they always train with someone else and then Mm -hmm. at the end of the technique they'll be training with each other and then you can see the evolution Mm -hmm. of them kind of teaching each other oh you're not doing it right because i did it with so and so and Mm -hmm. it felt different you know yeah okay um as a business person are you using self-defense in a different way in your business? When we do business within the industry, ordering kick pads or setting up partnerships or finding locations, are you using self-defense, not necessarily physical self-defense, but are you using a form of self-defense in those other aspects of your industry? Does it inform the way that you do business? Yeah, I think so. Because 
over the years, I've learned situational awareness. And I also teach that mindset has a lot to do with self-defense. And I think it's an aspect of self-defense that doesn't get taught very often. But getting that situational awareness helps me avoid some pitfalls in the industry, you know, mm-hmm. or just being an entrepreneur, period. I always want to put myself in a better position. If you're mm-hmm. in one scenario, you got to move to where you're putting yourself in a better position. Better your position, better your position, mm-hmm. you're going to win the fight. So I use that attitude when it comes to business and to cut out the frivolous stuff that is going to take up a lot of time and energy. Mm-hmm. And right. that that's some of the way I teach too, is that we do effective strikes or effective techniques. So we don't burn a lot of energy doing a bunch of stuff. That's not going to get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I use self-defense more mental in the sense of the business of how I'm going to do something. Right. Well, ideally, right. I mean, hopefully you're not actually using physical self-defense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You don't want to be that guy. So uh, you said that you didn't set yourself up or you didn't start out with the goal of teaching women specifically self-defense. It's just kind of how it happened. Mm -hmm. These are the people who responded to your course. I had mentioned earlier that I was going to ask you, where does the passion to teach women self-defense come from? But you've kind of answered that by saying there wasn't actually a passion. It's just the way that it worked out. But there is a passion to teach self-defense in general. And where does that come from? That, I think it came from the lower ranking belts. I didn't wake up when I was a kid and say, you know what, I want to open my own dojo or be a self-defense instructor or martial art instructor. I enjoyed doing it, but I think when I was teaching the lower ranking belts and I was getting feedback from them and I was getting it from my Shihan, which is a fast Japanese for master and my sensei, they were telling me, you know what? These students really like the way you teach. Mm-hmm. And when I would go on the mat, I noticed that my Shihan and my sensei were saying, Andrew, why don't you teach the class today? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, first I'm all nervous and like, I've never taught a class on my own, the whole thing from start to finish, you know, sometimes they'll have me warm up students and stuff like that, but not the whole class. And uh, I seen the response that the students were getting. I really, I love the feeling of how, It made me feel helping someone learn something that could help them. Mm -hmm. And that's where I kept going and I ended up getting my black belt. And that's when I decided to start my own school, my own business, Mm -hmm. you know. Where do you hope this will take you in the long run? Uh, I would love to do it full time. Right now I am... Mm -hmm. Um, part-time I only teach once a week Mm -hmm. but I would like to make it a full-time job because to me it's not a job when I teach it's not a job I lose myself in the class and sometimes I go a little off script and I forget what I was going to teach at that moment that never happens to me never 
Yeah. Not, not so, once have I ever done that. Yeah. I'm, I'm joking. I do it all the time. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's, I do lose track because I'm so focused and I'm enjoying it because it doesn't feel like work to me. Mm. When I teach, our pretty deadly classes are one hour, but when I teach, they're two. And so when I launched Pretty Deadly here in Berlin, um, they were always two-hour classes. And it wasn't until other people became trainers and started teaching and then started complaining to me and saying, we can't actually fill up the two hours. We don't need that amount of time. That I realized that it's just me because I like to talk and I'm passionate about it. And yeah, so I get it. I do the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's just most of the stuff that you, you want to give them so much information because you know that it's going to benefit them if they, mm-hmm. if they know it. But, but at the same time, I've also learned, and maybe you found this, you have thoughts on this, that people can get really overwhelmed. You know, one of the things that I didn't like about traditional self-defense classes is let's say it's like a two hour workshop and you've got these guys who are dumping in like 200 techniques, which are all really complicated. It's too much stuff. You're never going to remember it. It's too complicated. And the way that I developed our program is to try and keep it as simple as possible because of that aspect of like people tending to tending to give you too much. Have you found the same or are you kind of like all in? Let's just throw it all in, in our two hours. No, I, I agree with you in the simplicity. I just don't use the word simplicity, not for any particular reason. I use efficiency. Mm-hmm. So if I could have the person on the ground in two or three moves, I'd rather do that than do a move that takes five or six moves. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm all about being effective with our movement, conserving our energy. I don't want to throw a punch or a palm strike and hit air because that still takes energy. Mm-hmm. So if I could do something that could get me closer so I could set up a takedown in half the amount of energy then why not do that? But is that your goal when you're teaching to teach people how to get someone on the ground or take them down? It's not. My whole goal is to end the fight as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, it's a lot easier for mainly women to take a man down to the ground than it is for her to fight him toe to toe. So something that that we talk about in Pretty Deadly a lot is the fact that self-defense is not a fight. And what I'm wondering, what I'd like to know from you as a guy, self-defense trainer, what you believe women's challenges are when we are faced with with an assault or harassment, whether it's a, a passing thing or a super violent thing. Yeah, I can't remember if I said it earlier that... There is a difference between a fight and an attack and a fight. You could feel the escalation. You could feel it build up and some way, somehow both people are going to agree to it where an attack is a woman is walking down the street and a man is walking right by her and he passes her. He turns around and grabs her. 
He mm-hmm. knew he was going to do it. She didn't know. So there is a difference. You're already within arm's reach. Mm-hmm. So, and so what a woman can do in that sense is that situational awareness would be key. If you see that man walking towards you, trust your instinct. That's your body's early warning system telling mm-hmm. you that something's going on or something should catch your attention. So if you see that man coming at you or walking towards you, there's nothing wrong with you creating a little distance. If you have room on the sidewalk, make some more distance between you and the person. Just because they pass you, doesn't mean they can't turn around. Peripheral vision is awesome. You could still see someone if they pass by you with peripheral vision without having to turn your head. So awareness gives you time. And time is what you need to react. So being aware is a good start. Then women need to learn movement. So what do you think happens if a woman doesn't move? What do you think causes that? Um, they could go into the fight or flight mode or freeze. I, mm-hmm. And... It's not, it's not ideal for anybody, but mainly women to get caught in that kind of situation. If, if they can't move and they get paralyzed with fear, adrenaline or stress, the best advice to them is to scream. You have to draw attention because there might be someone out there that sees or hears what's going on and would be willing to help you. Mm-hmm. Can I share with you how we address this in Pretty Deadly? Sure. As a woman who's been in this situation, um, screaming is not a response, it's a reaction, and you can't always control it. You can't make the choice to scream or not. It's usually what your body decides to do. What we tell people in Pretty Deadly is um, when you freeze, because people do freeze, that is actually a legitimate self defense response. When we freeze, it's because on a subconscious level, our brain has picked up that this is our best chance for survival. That may be because we don't have any other tools at our disposal, meaning we haven't learned any self-defense or martial arts, or, you know, your arm is broken or something. You can't defend yourself for some reason. It may be because you've picked up some information that the situation can very quickly escalate or is much more dangerous than you consciously realize. Freezing is our biggest fear. I think it's most people's biggest fear. But freezing is also something that women will beat themselves up about for the rest of their lives. And it's a burden to walk around for the rest of your life believing that you have betrayed yourself and you didn't defend yourself. What we teach people in Pretty Deadly is if you live to tell about it, you have defended yourself 100% successfully, regardless of what it looks like or sounds like. Moving is great, but it's just not always an option. That's true. Excuse me. It's just like running. I mean, running, if you could run, run. It's not always an option, right? So again, it's something that women beat themselves up about forever. And it tends to just keep that trauma that they experience alive. And it's entirely unnecessary if 
we all understood what was really happening when people freeze. Right. It's not fear and panic, it's survival. And yeah. it's actually, I think, important to give women agency over that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Me, I understand the fight or flight and freeze. I've found in my experiences that if you train any kind of martial arts, I don't care the style. I'm not saying you won't freeze, but you reduce the odds of freezing. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I don't know if I agree with that because I think we're all human and we all react. So if somebody jumps out at me, my this is 23 years of martial arts training, which isn't nothing. It's my first reaction isn't going to like take a Kamai and be ready to respond. You know, my reaction is shock. Like, oh my God, you just surprised me because it's right. a surprise. Yeah. And I think it's really normal for people to be surprised regardless of how much training you've had. I personally, I've never actually tried to sneak up on my sensei and I don't think I ever would. Right. But I do know that he's human and he's got over 60 years of consistent, solid martial arts training coming straight out of Vietnam. So it's not like he's not a tough guy. He's a pretty tough guy. And his training has evolved to a degree where it's almost difficult to see him actually move. Although somehow you end up on the floor in a lot of pain anyway. But I feel fairly confident that that something can surprise him. Like, oh, I didn't see that coming because we're human. And I feel that's an important thing to stress when talking about self-defense and martial arts. I think I, I totally agree with what you're saying. What I wanted to say is I understand the surprise, but I think that if you are trained, I think your response, your reaction time is faster in, in the sense of the surprise. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does make sense. It's that reaction gap and that reaction time. But when real life happens at real life speed, you're going to have that reaction gap and that's okay. It's fine. There's very little kinds of training in the world that trains your emotions out of you, you know, so that's first. And if you're not doing that, then you're always going to have a reaction gap. Right. I mean, so when you think about snipers, they're snipers, not just because they're really good shots and they could shoot fast, but they also get additional training to help them suppress their emotions, to help them keep a cool head and to help them normalize a really highly intense situation. But most of us don't do that, right? Martial arts, I don't think can provide you that in a dojo. You know that that threat for your life is not real. So it's always going to be a simulation. And no matter how much you simulate it, it's never going to be the same as somebody actually trying to kill you. Right. It's a very, very different feeling and, or somebody trying to rape you, which is also very different. It's a, it's that reaction gap is just always going to be there. If you're a human being, all of it is normal, but here's how we can trust our body to, so that we know that we're going to do our best to take care of ourselves. That's basically it. No, I get it. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that I've been around and have talked to have that have been 
uh, assaulted in one way, shape or form. And a lot of them say they wish they would have fought back. It's not that they froze. It's just that they wish they would have fought back, but they were afraid to fight back. Does that make sense? It does, but I think there can be some complicated things there that people aren't always able to articulate. A lot of times women will withhold um, from defending herself because she's afraid that if she does defend herself or if she makes a move, that will actually escalate the situation and the aggressor will come back even harder. Right, that makes sense. So the idea of like, we're very socialized to be nice, especially in terms of women, is for us, we are socialized to, to be very aware that people will punish us for standing up for ourselves because that's what people have done. We put it in terms of being nice or I'm afraid to hurt anyone. But what's really going on underneath that is I'm afraid that if I do something, that person's going to come back harder. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I just want women to know it's okay to fight back. And whatever way they decide to fight back, it's okay for them to fight back. That's obviously an important message. Yeah, that's the whole thing had students that left the workshop because they didn't want to hit a pad or -hmm. they didn't want to hit me or they didn't want to spar. I think also how you're able to read the student and be trauma aware or domestic violence aware and understand how to recognize those signs and know how to support them. So in my experience, a lot of times when people don't want to hit the pad or don't want to hit another person, there's some very important underlying things happening um, that need to be addressed on a certain level. You're absolutely right. You can't force anybody and you shouldn't force anybody. Being aware of the signs of long-term trauma and recent trauma, being aware of the signs of domestic violence when it's present. Um, being aware of a body disconnect and what that means and how that manifests, I think is the responsibility of the trainer to ensure safe and responsible training. Yeah. One, one of the things that I've experienced as an, as a trainer is that most of my students that I've had that had some kind of assault, um, they've always told me ahead of time. Mm-hmm. privately and I don't share it with the class I don't I don't tell anybody if the student wants to share it with the other students that's up to them and most mm-hmm. of them do they don't go mm-hmm. into details but they'll give you the nutshell version of it mm-hmm. and you know I had a young girl she was 25 years old uh, she trained with me for about a year she was a pharmacist at a, a big drugstore mm-hmm. And she was robbed at gunpoint twice mm-hmm. within three years. There was certain things that I had to adjust the way I taught her, especially when we were doing gun disarms and stuff like that. When I, I was trying to teach her multiple attackers and, you know, normally it's maybe you're in the middle and there's four or five people surrounding you. Mm-hmm. And the way we were doing it, so she came up to me and told me what's a little too fast and she could feel the anxiety. So I said, okay, we're going to do the same thing. 
but everybody's walking. Before we were doing sparring speed. Mm-hmm. And when she got in the middle, we were walking. I told everybody, you're all zombies. You're trying to get her. So everybody's walking slow with their boxing gloves out. And she did the minute. And she was so happy with herself that she was able to do it. Mm-hmm. And she told the whole class afterwards, she goes, you know what? That was fun. I learned what I needed to learn. And I didn't have a panic attack. So mm-hmm. like you said, that to me, that is the instructor's responsibility to make sure that the students are comfortable in the class from the beginning of the class to the end of the class, mm-hmm. every single class. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. That's a big part of our trainers training is to know how to make sure that people are comfortable and what to say as well. But for us, it's also to identify someone who's experienced or who's showing the signs of some kind of trauma and body disconnect, because it can also be dangerous for their training partner and the whole group. So we always want to make sure that we're creating a safe emotional and physical environment where people's needs are respected and supported as much as possible. And, And for us, it's, it's very much about being able to recognize that when people can't articulate it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, you have to be comfortable in the environment that we're in for you to grow. Mm. You you can still be uncomfortable and feel safe. Does that make sense? It does. That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, Well, so that being said, if other people want to learn self-defense, if they're in the Los Angeles area, how can they find you? Well, you can find me on my website as www.riseabovesoutdefense.com. Um, you could also check out my podcast on all the major providers. It's called Mind Your Self Defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I really try to focus on the mindset of, of protecting yourself. And I think that's a part that is not taught enough in martial arts or self defense. Mm-hmm is having the mindset that it's okay to fight to defend yourself or your loved ones, mm-hmm. you know? So you have to have the mindset. If you go in with that mindset, you're already ahead of the game. Okay. It's like your motto. Yes. Yeah. Where else can people find you on the podcast, on your website? Uh, Instagram yeah. rise above self-defense on Instagram. And the podcast mm-hmm. and the website, that's pretty much, I okay. don't have as many labels as you do. Not yet. I think we've only got one more. Yeah, I don't think we're only one ahead of you. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being our 101st episode. Andrew? Thank you again for having me. My pleasure. You're listening to the Pretty Deadly Self-Defense Podcast, hosted on ACAST and available on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, and our website at prettydeadlyselfdefense.com and wherever you get your favorite pods.